0: Welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy Podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber, and if you would like to be on the show, you can give me a call on the listener hotline. That we always say in radio, call us on the contact line. uh, The number 303-832-0217. This week, the listener line has been quiet. Too quiet, if you ask me. Uh, give it a call and, and let me know what's on your mind. Rings a couple of times, boom, you have the recording, and you can even hit the pound sign and get right to the recording. And then I'll put you here on the show. Uh, I was actually contacted by somebody uh, talking about um, a new platform they have to uh, actually put like live calls or something on a podcast or uh, uh, somehow I- interact. With, I, I don't know. It was, it was an interesting concept, but... I don't think I'm I'm quite uh, quite ready for that audience. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> no guests today. I I was expecting to have a couple of different guests here today, uh, and and none not, of nothing came through yet. Um, but <laughs> I expect to have a flurry of activity the rest of this week and into next week. And so um, I'm actually going to hopefully talk to somebody really cool stuff. So here in Denver, they have been rebuilding part of Interstate 70 on the north side of downtown Denver, and it was an elevated. Portion of of the interstate, so uh, for a couple of miles, it was basically a bridge, and uh, it it was a it was pretty cool. It, it actually going under there. There was actually a road under there, Forty Sixth Avenue, and um, it, it, but the bridge was was falling apart. Basically, it was really nasty, and it needed to come down. Well, the Department of Transportation decided that they uh, wanted to replace the bridge with a tunnel, and in order to do that, they've actually had to build a tunnel next to the elevated portion of the roadway. And so you're going to go from above ground to underground. And it's really an interesting concept where they have put a, a cap along part of the interstate, and they've made it into a park and a ball field and and put roads on top of it. So instead of the interstate going on top of the roads connecting these two different neighborhoods in North Denver, it's actually underneath. And so now the neighborhoods are connected once again without the interstate uh, being basically a a river uh, uh, above it. It's actually a river below it. Um, It's actually a pretty interesting concept, and it's Pretty interesting engineering, and so I thought uh, maybe we could talk to one of the uh, uh, engineers there at the department uh, or at um, uh, Kiewit who is building this whole project. And it, I think it's pretty interesting to see how they went from building a brand new tunnel. I mean, this is a huge tunnel. It's only halfway done, and so they're going to put traffic, they're going to move the traffic from up above to down below here in the next month or so. They're going to take down the entire old section of the highway and then build another tunnel. Uh, it's, it's costing a whole lot of money. It's actually a pretty interesting project. And, uh, I hope to talk to somebody maybe even next week about that whole thing and, uh, how it's going. Uh, anyway, around the Denver area here, there's a couple issues I want to talk about today, including one where uh, maybe in your neighborhood or in your town, you've seen street racers. It's been a big problem here around Metro Denver and, and there have been several times that these street racers have either blocked a, an entire roadway or what they usually do is it on the interstate because it's easier for them to block off traffic. So they do these coordinated uh, burnouts, if you will. It's it's where they, they they get in the car, they slam on the brakes, and then they hit the gas. You know, they're doing donuts, they're doing burnouts, right, some of the uh, tire smoke up in the air. So what they have to do is they have to coordinate with a, with a couple other drivers to start going slow, get in all lanes of the interstate, whether it's two or three or four, whatever. And then they start going slowly. They start slowing down, slowing down to eventually a stop. And then they have a whole bunch of cars across the lanes of traffic, so it's impeding anybody else from going that direction. So it's basically stopping traffic on the interstate, and then all the people that are doing the burnouts or doing the craziness are ahead of those drivers, and so they have a wide-open interstate to do whatever they want to do, to do a race or do a burnout or, or, or do whatever, while everybody else behind them is stuck. They can't go anywhere. I mean, they're, just, they're stuck on the interstate. They can't move at all. And you can imagine how that is distressing to not only the people who are stuck behind these street racers, but also to emergency officials, law enforcement, uh, fire department, and anybody like that who might have an emergency to get to. And let's say there's somebody who had a heart attack and the ambulance driver would usually use the interstate to go from that person's neighborhood to uh, the hospital. And if the highway is shut down or blocked by these street racers or, or burnout uh, uh, events, then you, you got to think that that's obviously a dangerous situation. And so that's why law enforcement uh, is not happy about these events happening. Well, out to the east side of Metro Denver, we have a city named Aurora, Aurora, Colorado on the east side of Denver. Well, this one of these uh, burnout events was happening about a month ago, about the beginning of March. And Officers started showing up because drivers were calling 911 saying, hey, the why is the highway closed? There's something going on. These people are doing s- some crazy stuff. And when officers finally showed up, it took them about 20 minutes to get through the traffic jam to get up to the front area there. And the officers s- saw some of the drivers doing the burnouts. And the others, they saw other uh, drivers doing uh, lighting off fireworks from their car. Uh, some drivers actually had guns. That were outside of their windows. That's obviously not a safe situation. And the officers initially were reporting maybe six to eight hundred vehicles involved in this entire situation. Not not necessarily all of those were part of the burnout holding back the vehicles. I mean, obviously, several hundred of those or many hundred of them uh, were involved because they were uh, unintentionally involved because they had the uh, traffic stopped in front of them. So the Aurora police department, they what they wanted to do, they they did an investigation of this whole thing and and they focused their investigation on the organizers or facilitators of this what they called the highway takeover. They found one person, it's a juvenile, uh, a a boy who's under 18. And and they issued that person a summons with a mandatory court appearance for reckless driving, driving a vehicle while license was canceled, and engaging in speed exhibition, basically street racing. They also found a second person as an organizer, 21-year-old Anthony Corona. And these are the charges that Tony was facing. And these are some pretty serious charges. Conspiracy, reckless endangerment, obstructing highway or other passageway, false imprisonment, and that's based on the victims, all the people, all the drivers who were trapped in their cars on the interstate during this incident. They were going to charge this guy with false imprisonment. That, that's interesting. Also with disorderly conduct, exhibition of speeding, reckless driving, and impeding normal flow of traffic. Now, most of those aren't aren't huge deals, except for the false imprisonment. A lot of people, I think OJ, we actually spent jail because of uh, false imprisonment, or or kidnapping, or I mean, that's that's basically what that charge is. Now, unfortunately, Mister Corona. He died in a traffic crash in the North Metro Denver suburb of Broomfield about a month after this highway burnout incident and before Aurora Police Traffic Unit investigators could formally charge, charge, uh, file charges against him. So it was a month after his birthday. His birthday was in early March. They did this burnout, presumably maybe for his birthday or as a birthday celebration, because his birthday was right there at the same time, a month later, he dies in this traffic crash, and then later that month, a couple weeks later, he was going to be charged with all of those charges uh, for uh, his role as an instigator and uh, organizer of this burnout on the interstate. It's, it's, an, it's a wild story. Now, the city of Aurora says they're also going to be stepping up their enforcement of these incidents, and they're going to be targeting now owners of vehicles that are involved in legal activities on roadways. It doesn't matter, they say, whether the driver of the vehicle was involved or just the vehicle was involved by somebody else driving it. So they're going to charge or go after the owner of these vehicles. They say they're going to be... Uh, looking for reckless driving, careless driving, uh, speed contests, speed ex- ex- exhibitions, uh, trespassing, and reckless endangerment. But, but of course you can see that there are other charges that could be piled on, like that false imprisonment, which is a pretty big deal. They say they're going to go after the owners of vehicles because it is obviously more uh, impactful to you as a person if if they're going after your car and they say they're going to impound your car, because they're going to send you first a notice, but if the activity continues, uh, you could be subject to prosecution or you have your car impounded. And and I don't think those those guys, especially those street racers, want to have their car impounded. Well, nobody wants to have their car impounded, right? And most of the Metro Denver law enforcement agencies, they put together this uh, website. Report dot hoping that the public is going to report more of this uh, street racing to try to uh, see less of it. Uh, I remember it was a couple of years ago there were some uh, folks on motorcycles that basically did the same thing, pretty much closed off the interstate, and then they were doing some burnouts and donuts on the. Uh, you could still see on I twenty five where they did that. You could still see some of the marks on the uh, on the highway. Um, so obviously it's a dangerous situation, but it was floor it floors me that this guy would have been charged with false impri- imprisonment. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. So, anyway, did you see that movie Contagion? It's uh, very similar to what we're dealing with right now, and COVID. Um, where somebody uh, there, there was I think it was in China, somebody at some lab was working with uh, a virus. Ah uh, gets the virus, beats somebody, and then you you then it just starts taking over the virus is then released to the public after one person gets it because that person came back to the United States and it starts traveling from person to person to person. Um, but but at the end of the movie, there was a vaccine that was developed. and and when somebody would get a shot for this uh, for for that virus, they would get a bracelet that proved that they were vaccinated. And I think that movie, is actually coming to real life. That is what's happening with travel, with events. Uh, We we are going to see events and travel where you're going to have to be vaccinated, prove your vaccination to do certain things. You're going to have a vaccination section and a non-vaccination section, like back in the 70s where you had the smoking section and non-smoking section. Well, there's a British cyber technology company, VST Enterprises. I, I was reading about this a while back. They have this fit-to-fly secure health passport, and it's designed just for air travels. You, you download the app to your phone. Uh, you put in your information. It proves that you've been vaccinated. But what's happening here is that there are certain security issues that people are having with their current vaccination cards, because a lot of people are just—they're not. I, when, I, when I went and got my vaccination, they said, don't get it laminated because you might need to get booster shots, and then we'll have to put more stickers on this card. Um, it, it seems impractical just to have a card, so they said, just take a picture of it. Well, what's happening is people are taking pictures of it, and either they're posting it on their Instagram, their Facebook, whatever, and then crafty folks with good Photoshop skills, much better than me, are taking these. And then creating fake COVID-19 certificates or uh, the, these these vaccination cards. And they're showing up on the internet for a fee at an alarming rate. Because on the internet, you, you can do just about anything. And it's especially booming in, in Russia, in the Middle East, in many countries around Europe where you want to get in. But Europe won't let you in unless you can prove that you have a vaccination. So, uh, a couple of upcoming flights I have. I uh, I've not been asked to do the to to pr- prove I've had a vaccination, maybe just because they're domestic flights and I'm just flying within the United States. I wouldn't be surprised though that I'm asked either at the airport or on subsequent flights in the future. Uh I I don't know, I might tell them, I might not. It'll be a game day decision. <laughs> I don't know. Um my station asked me if if we're uh, if we're getting vaccinated. See, they're putting teams of reporters and photographers together, and maybe this is happening in your business too, where uh, they're asking people if they've been vaccinated, if they want to come back to work, because there's a lot of people that want to stay at home too. But but our company, Scripps, is putting together teams of a reporter and photographer together if they've been vaccinated and they're willing to work together. Uh, the same for two news anchors on the desk together, because up to this point, they've been either apart by 10 or 15 or 20 feet on different desks, on different cameras. But now if both have been vaccinated and it's been past the two weeks after the second shot and they're both comfortable with it, they can get on the same desk together. And they're going to do a test run of this, see how it goes And then I think that's what we're going to migrate to more folks coming back into the office. I I imagine I could be back in the studio and out of my basement in maybe a month or two. I mean, I kind of figured that is the time frame of when it would happen anyway. But that's the way it's looking right now. Um, I'm, though, a bit torn. Uh, I, I do like aspects of being home. And I like aspects of being in the studio. Being in the studio, it's real time. There's really interaction with people. Uh, it's more energetic, I think, than being alone at home in your basement. However, I am alone at home in my basement, and that's comfortable for me. And I can just run upstairs and grab myself a, uh, a hot tea or a snack. Or It's a lot easier to pack for lunch when you have your refrigerator at your house. Than it is to pack for a lunch. Uh, when and, 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 and this is weird, I know, but I eat my lunch at about seven thirty in the morning. Um, that's because I. It <laughs> works. It's three thirty in the morning, um, but that's that, it's. It, the, there are a lot of aspects. I love seeing my kids in the morning. That's great. Seeing my wife in the morning. That's great. Um, but there's also a, a an energy that is at the studio that you just don't get at at home. So. Yeah, uh, you know what? I think actually the best of both worlds. If I could have all my computer equipment that I had at the station here at my house, so it could do this in real time, where there's not a four-second delay, uh, I I might lobby to stay home forever. <laughs> I could set up the green screen. I could just uh, pop and click with my uh, my little clicker here, and all my uh, computer. I could then I could really set up a real basement studio. And do this full-time from home. You know, I could probably even convince the company that I could do uh, stations, uh, maybe some of their small market stations. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I could do traffic not only for, for here, but maybe for Boise. And and maybe for, um, I don't know, where, uh, where are we not doing traffic? Maybe Tulsa. I don't think we're doing traffic in Tulsa. Um, uh, where else do we? I think we have some small markets somewhere in Florida or the south somewhere. All right, see, I could, I could lobby to do all that right here from my basement, and just record those, and then have them sent off, and and uh, then they get me tell them about their little roads and in, in their their place. Hey, maybe then I could do this. I, I could even uh, lobby to do that, and then as long as I have a good internet connection, I could be I could be in the Grand Cayman Islands. I could I could we could move to the Caymans. You know, I've always wanted every anytime we my wife and I would go on a on a cruise in years past. We would go to uh, Grand Cayman, and I, I would get off the ship, and I'd say, come on, please, let me let me just go. I, I, I have $100. Let me open up a bank account here just so I can say I have an offshore Cayman Island bank account. I wouldn't do anything with it. Just, you know, gives you a little gravitas, right? I mean, who doesn't want to say I have a Grand Cayman bank account? All right. Well, anyway, a couple of months ago, I told you about this trip I took to Oregon as part of my uh, travel f- for my brother's fiftieth birthday. I flew one leg of the flight from Portland to Redmond, Oregon, on this uh, little airline called Boutique Air. They do little flights to little to uh, either a big airport, little airport, but uh, uh, and and they do these little uh, short regional trips. It, it was a small plane, maybe nine seats. I think eight of them were used. It was super easy because you show up to this little hangar outside of the main airport area, so you're not in the main terminal, going through the big security, anything like that. You just show up. You go to these these two people who are sitting on the desk. This little, you know, de- it was just it was basically a, the, the lobby of a hangar, and you're and you're hanging out, and it's just you and the and the other people that are going to be on the plane, and you walk. On I mean, really, you walk out of the door, and there's your plane right there, about forty feet away. And you walk onto the plane. So simple, so easy. There weren't security issue, any of that stuff. You just get on the plane. The plane flies you to the to Redmond in this case, and then you get off the plane. And there was some security guy that was watching us get off the plane, escorted us through the uh, the exit for the airport, and some and and you pick up either if you packed your bag, they they had to take your bag. I put it in the back of that little plane, uh, and they give you your bag, and off you go. I mean, it was super simple, super easy, really fast, uh, way more enjoyable than being on the big airlines, and the price was comparable to the large airlines. It was a huge time saver. You could have shown up about a half an hour ahead of time, got on the plane, and boom, you're gone. Um, It's so much better than having to go through all the hassle of the big airports. I, I just don't like the big airports. I was reading this article from, that was put out by uh, Bob Poole from the Reason Foundation. I, I, I've had Bob here on the show. Uh, it was back in uh, episode 119, way back when. Uh, it's worth a listen again, actually, that interview. I put the link uh, to that show in the description. Uh, now, Bob's article was dealing with new airlines starting up. Even in the midst of, of this horrible time for the major airlines over the last year, It seems, as he was saying, there's always optimistic entrepreneurs ready to move into the airline business. And he was talking about this article from Aviation Week that was talking more about this phenomenon. And it was titled, The airline industry would not be the airline industry if there were not substantial numbers of new carrier projects lined up and waiting for the right moment to launch their first flights. Their team of reporters at Aviation Week estimated that worldwide the number of airline startups this year in 2021 could surpass the number of airline failures from last year. That, that, I guess that makes sense. I mean, it's, it, it seems like it's a risky time to get into the airline business, uh, but starting a new airline has advantages uh, because the established airlines, they're, they're they're weaker than they were before the pandemic. They are not flying, and we've covered this story in the past. They're not flying to as many cities, especially to smaller markets, leaving a lot of these smaller cities with no nonstop service between them. And And used aircraft right now are available at a historically low cost, either to buy them or to lease them. And these legacy carriers have have such high overhead than a leaner, meaner startup. And these smaller airlines that, like I said, just have a couple of pilots and a small plane. And they're just flying between two small airports. And the, the, the plane was full. It was, I think, $88 uh, for that flight between Portland and Redmond. Um, and so, you're, I mean, you're looking at, what, $700 for that one flight? I I don't know how it's if it's profitable for them or not, uh, and I don't know how many flights a day they they were doing, but it it worked out for me. I loved it. You know you have these, and, and you also have these uh, cockpit and cabin crew people who have been out of work. They've been furloughed or laid off, and there are a lot of people out there ready to work, and. and and they're ready to work anywhere, whether it's a established airline or a startup airline. Because I, I I think the days of, you know, when I used to fly, uh, that one of the guys I used to fly with, Tony LaMonica, God rest his soul, uh, his wife worked for, I think it was United, uh, as a flight attendant for years and years and years and years. And they were counting on the pension, but of course United and Delta, at those times the big legacy carriers, they were having problems with, covering the costs of those uh, pensions that they were promising all their employees. Now, things have changed over the years. The unions have made different deals with the employees over the years. Uh, And I think newer employees of airlines aren't looking at the airline or really any business or any job, uh, except maybe for uh, teaching and, and some government work, for the pension, for the government pension. At least they're not doing that in the private industry. So there are a lot of folks who are now in the airline industry who are willing and able to work at either a startup or a non-legacy carrier just because you you might make more money, you might have better flexible hours, you might have a better work experience, uh, and not really count on having a traditional airline pension. And there's still some retirees who might be ha- having a pension or, or just retired and, and they want something else to do. So uh, these um, new startups could attract them to come come work for them. Now, a big key in the success of these startup airlines is who is founding it, who's starting it, who's running it. One of these airlines, it's either Avelo or Avelo, A-V-E-L-O. The other one is called Breeze. And it helps when you have experienced airline veterans starting these things. The first one, Avalo is what I'll call it. Their person that's going to run it, it's going to be the brainchild of Andrew Levy. He's a former CFO of United Airlines and president of Allegiant Airways. The other startup airline, Breeze, is the startup for serial entrepreneur David Nealman, whose successful startups include JetBlue, WestJet, Azul, and and both of these men plan to operate their new airlines as low-cost carriers. Basic pricing plus charging for everything like your bags, your seats, your uh, drinks, your food, your (laughs) everything, right? The air you breathe. But their planned niche markets are a little bit different. Avelo is going to launch from Burbank in California, and they're going to have 11 routes to popular leisure destinations out in the West, like Bend, Oregon, Bozeman, Montana, Eugene, Oregon, uh, Medford, Redding, Santa Rosa. They're going to do these smaller, shorter flights. And then they talk about maybe future hubs at secondary airports in larger metro areas like uh, maybe Mesa Airport in Metro Phoenix or uh, Sarasota down in the Tampa Bay area or or the Hobby Airport in Metro Houston. So they don't go to the big, major airport in those towns. They go to the secondary airport in those towns because it's easier to get in and out of, and especially for a small plane. They're going to begin service from Burbank at the end of this month with used 737s, so a fairly decent-sized aircraft. Now, Breeze has a somewhat different approach. They're not going to go with hubs at all, and they're going to focus on nonstop service connecting uh, unserved markets, especially the small and medium cities, starting east of the Mississippi, with expected demand somewhere lower on those, uh, I guess they call them thinner routes. They're not really used that much. Breeze is going to operate a mixed fleet of aircraft, a couple of versions of the Embraer uh, E-Jets to begin with. And then they'll, after that, they're going to order some Airbuses, some smaller A-220 Airbuses. And uh, the, the 737s are going to have, they, they have like 200 seats, but the E-Jets, these smaller ones, have about half that, about 110 seats or so. The A-220s have about, what, maybe 150. Um, so they're a little bit bigger. Uh, but those are gonna serve some of those smaller to medium-sized airports and and it's really good news for small and medium airports and cities across the country because they're gonna be those people there that live there will be served uh, not by legacy carriers but by these new carriers and at least by somebody at least somebody's gonna be flying there and and they'll be able to compete maybe with uh, some of the uh, the legacy carriers the bigger ones with with these no-frill. If you want a real cheap fare and you don't have a lot of bags and, and you just want to go from here to the beach, boom, you're on the plane for 50 or 60 bucks. And, and it, I mean, not everybody's willing to pay, uh, you know, put up with all that less leg room and and, and less convenience. Uh, I tell you, I, I don't like Spirit Airlines. It's it's really, I that is the worst airline I ever flew in my life. And if I can't avoid it, I won't ever fly with them again. But it, it's it's, you can't, Discount the success that Allegiant and Frontier and Spirit have had, even with no leg room and 40 pounds on your bags. Ugh. I, you know what? If you want to listen to that story, that that made me so mad when they were saying, oh, I have, I mean, seriously, here's the deal. Let's say you have two bags, and let's say you've paid for both bags, and you have a weight limit of 40 pounds per bag. Well, all the other airlines have a 50-pound limit, so it's not really about, I can't carry the bag, right? So it's not about that. They can carry the bag. Anyway... They have. You should have a total of 80 pounds. So if I have one bag that's 50 pounds and one bag that's 30 pounds, I should be able to get both bags on the airplane with my 80-pound limit, not not have exactly 40 in one and 40 in the other, right? Am I way off base there? I mean, as long as maybe it's under 50 and you get a total allowance of how many pounds for your total bags instead of having to take stuff out of one at the terminal, and put it in the other, because I was three pounds overweight. Oh, so stupid. Anyway, so there you go. go. You, you can see what gets me going uh, about the airlines. Um, but anyway, it'll be nice to see. I, I love smaller airports. I, I, I mean, I flew uh, it, it, at Centennial Airport here in Metro Denver and Rocky Mountain Metro Airport for a long time when I was flying in the helicopter. And I used to see these small planes all the time. And I wonder why more uh, people don't do that. You, get, you start doing little regional uh, flights from small airport to small airport. So much easier to get in and out of. And, and it's just it's it's so much more convenient. Really is. I mean that's a huge advantage why so many corporations will have their their own private jet or you see the success of, of companies like Net NetJets, where they will take people on a private jet. You're buying either shares of a private jet, or, or some private jet companies now are actually selling uh, flights. You can just say, "All right, I, I, do you have a flight going from here to there?" Basically, you're a deadhead on one of these flights not not the band, uh, but you're <laughs> that's what they call it. So you're going from one place to the next if they have some uh, if they have some room. It's so much more convenient, so much easier. I mean, it really is. All right. On a whole different subject, do you stay or, when you're in the car? and you want to make a left turn, do you stay back at the uh, stop line or the crosswalk, or do you pull halfway out when you're making that left? This was a subject of one of my driving you crazy segments recently, and the question was asking if you want to make a left at a traffic light, do you pull halfway out and then make your turn when it's clear, or do you stay back near the crosswalk and wait for all the traffic to clear, and then you make your turn? So it came from this listener named Scott. He is from Denver. And he wrote, what's driving you crazy? Why are people afraid to pull out into the intersection to turn left at a green light? The new thing is to hold back and then race across all lanes, i.e. cars are coming, when the light is green. Pull out of the intersection and proceed when the light turns red. If you're there, you have the right to finish your move. To pull out... Or not to pull out? That is the question. (laughs) That could go so many ways. There are drivers who who suffer the slings and arrows coming from the eyes and mouths of drivers who are convinced, like Scott, that you need to pull halfway out to make the left. While there are others who feel safer to just wait back at the crosswalk or the stop bar. But as I've answered in, in the past similar questions to this one, who is right and who is wrong is a is a tricky one to answer. Many states, Colorado included, does not dictate expressly if drivers should wait at the stop bar or should pull halfway out into the intersection. The law only requires that drivers yield to oncoming traffic and to pedestrians that might be in the crosswalk. Some drivers might interpret waiting in the middle of the intersection to turn left as standing. Therefore, you should wait back at the stop bar and not pull halfway out. Even though the law is indifferent to waiting at the stop line or pulling halfway out into the intersection, our Colorado driver handbook is much more specific. It says, if you are turning left, you should wait at the stop line or crosswalk until there is a gap in traffic large enough to allow you to pull into the intersection and complete your turn. Pulling into the intersection to wait to the wait to turn left blocks the intersection for emergency vehicles, limits visibility for oncoming traffic, and puts you in a position to get in an accident if the light changes and oncoming traffic runs the red light while you are making your turn. Never turn the front wheels towards the left while you are waiting to turn. If you happen to get rear-ended, you would be pushed into oncoming traffic the likelihood of an emergency vehicle coming through the intersection while you're trying to make a left is very, 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 very very low. Super low. So low you shouldn't worry about it. Now, having your wheels turn to the left while you're waiting to make the left, obviously, again, the chances of you getting rear-ended while you're going to wait to make a left in the middle of an intersection, it's very, 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 low. I mean, so low, I think they just have to put that in there just because somebody might do it. That's why there's warning labels on Tide Pods so you don't eat them. Now, most law enforcement recommends that even though you aren't prohibited from pulling out and waiting, you shouldn't enter the intersection unless it's safe to complete that entire turning movement. They say it can be dangerous if drivers are pulling out into the intersection, knowing that the oncoming traffic will not allow them to safely complete the left turn until the light turns yellow, then red. And by the way, if you pull out halfway and the light does turn from green to yellow and then red, you do need to clear the intersection. You should complete that left turn as soon as safe as is possible. So the bottom line, Scott, is even though you can pull halfway out and think everybody else should, it's okay to wait back at the crosswalk or the stop bar. That's okay. Just so show some patience with the driver who decides to wait and not go halfway. And, and I think that's where the frustration lies. When someone waits back at the crosswalk and then they, they miss the opportunity to make the turn at the yellow light when there isn't a clear break in traffic. That's the frustration where somebody might be waiting back there. The light turns yellow, then red. And that person didn't make the turn. And you know that that driver who, who didn't make the turn is going to miss the next light cycle and miss the next light cycle and just never make that turn. It gets frustrating. I get it. I, I, I would hopefully find another way. i maybe make a right to make a left. If you know what I mean, but the, it's yes, it's fru- you know what you you know it, here's another way to frustrate drivers. It, when you're at a stoplight, and let's say you're just going to go straight, don't pull right up to the person right in front of you. Give it about a twenty or twenty-five foot distance, a nice big gap in there, at least a car-length gap, and just watch in your rear-view mirror the driver behind you if they're not looking at their phone get real agitated about that really really agitated. That's the way that for some reason people get really upset about that so I uh, you know if, if I'm in a, if I'm making a left sometimes I'll pull halfway out sometimes I'll wait back depends on the uh, depends on the light depends on how many lanes there are how, how busy it is if I think I'm gonna be able to make it then I will and even if I'm back at the crosswalk or the, or the stop bar and uh, and let's say the light turns yellow, And 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 drivers are are, I can see them starting to slow down. I might just make that left right from there. But usually I I would say more times than not I am pulling halfway out into the intersection to make that left. Yeah. But hey, you can let me know what which way you go. Do you pull halfway out or or do you do you do you keep you know do you stay do you stay back? Uh, you can always comment uh, and contact me on any of the uh, ways that are in the description of this show. You can uh, email me, Twitter me, uh, Facebook me, or call 303-832-0217. All right, I'm hoping to have a guest next week, and I, it should be interesting. should be pretty fun. Uh, I, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening, as always. I'm Jason living the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.